All right, friends. Woo! Yes, let's find our way back to our seats this morning. I've got one very quick announcement. And here's the irony of this word, because this quick announcement actually took our staff literally almost two hours of deliberation, debate, almost near out fighting. It was, it was, an, it was my first day back from sabbatical and yeah, okay, maybe not near fight, but it does make it a much more of a dramatic story, doesn't it? All that being said, let me tell you what we're gonna be doing for Christmas Eve this year. Uh, and there's a lot of context and there's a lot of history that has gone into this that I won't share. Uh, but we are choosing this year to actually have our Christmas Eve service at North with the rest of our New Life family. Uh, don't, don't go, ah, it's exciting. And here's one of the reasons why, amongst many, here's one of the great reasons why it's exciting. Our very own Jonathan Swindle is going to be opening each of the three Christmas Eve services with a piano solo, guys. Come on, we do not want to miss that. So here's what we felt like would be a great compromise because I came into the meeting saying, we have to have Christmas Eve at Midtown. And I was like ready to die on that hill. And then after two hours of deliberation, they persuaded me. So here's our great, here's our great compromise. And I don't think it's a compromise. I actually think it's a really, really great win-win. I felt like having Christmas Eve at Midtown would be great so that we could continue family traditions, so that we could be here in a very, you know, homey environment. We're going to replicate that on Sunday morning, the 26th. So we're going to have, we're going to have a, a family service on Sunday, the 26th. We're going to combine services, isn't that right? So we're going to have a 10 a.m. service. My boy Kirby here is all about uniting the clans. He was like, yes, like, we should have never separated in the first place. Easy now, easy, okay? The family is growing, brother, okay? Like, Britain Nursery's growing, we're growing. Growth is a good thing. So we're combining the services. We're going to have food. We're going to have hot chocolate. We're going to have Christmas cookies. Everything that we would typically do on a Christmas Eve service, we're going to do it on Sunday the 26th. It's going to be a blast. More details to come. Now, there are three Christmas Eve services at North. We are going to pick the 6 p.m. service. We're going to uh, designate a section. We're going to reserve seats for Midtown. And we're also going to find a room somewhere on that massive campus for us to have hot chocolate and cookies. And for anyone who wants to connect with the Midtown family, even for a few minutes before you go on with your family Christmas Eve traditions, we would love to connect with you. We would love to just experience Christmas Eve together at 6 p.m. All right, friends? Guys, listen. Everywhere around town I went, I heard about this preacher who's been preaching a series on Ruth here at New Life Midtown, tearing it up. I'm like, I don't even need to come back. I may extend this through December and come back in January. Jonathan Swindle, how many gifts and talents does this guy have? Get up here. We need you back. Need you. Oh, sorry, I don't know what I'm doing here. All right, Jonathan, bring us the second message of Advent, brother. Well, I, my joke was going to be turning your Bibles to Ruth chapter 5. <clears throat> you all read your Bibles. You know that it's not there. So, well, Pastor Jade stole half my message and my opener. Christ is risen. I mean, he does such a good job, but he always steals half my stuff when he's here. It is great to have you back, guys. And, of course, all the Dunkin' kids. It's good to be with you. Though they did sneak in from time to time because they just, they weren't having it. They're like, mom and dad, you're on sabbatical. We're still going to school, okay? So we're coming to church. 
Well, this is the second sermon in our Advent series, and maybe you are like me and did not grow up where Advent meant much. And I don't say that as a, as a discredit to my parents or my tradition or my, my church family. It just wasn't something that we participated in. And as I have grown and gone to school and met other pastors and leaders in other faith, not other faith traditions beyond Christianity, but other streams of the church, I have come to see that Advent is perhaps the most important season for people who grew up like me as charismatic Pentecostal evangelicals. And so just a quick word on what Advent is. If you are like me just a couple of years ago, you might need some bringing in. And then we're going to jump right into the story of John the Baptist and Zechariah today. So what is Advent? As Pastor Jade said, it means coming. And there are three comings of Jesus Christ. And I believe it was Bernard of Clairvaux in the 12th century who first coined this, this little way of speaking about the three comings of Christ. The first one, most notably, of course, is Christmas. It is the incarnation. It is what we will celebrate in the next season of the church, Christmas tide. The second one is what we call the second coming. It, it is when Christ will return and make all things new. But the third coming of Christ is the coming that happens to each of us all the time through the body by the spirit. It is how Christ comes to us in this moment, in this service. We have already been encountered by Christ through the body by the power of the spirit. Maybe you haven't felt that, but it is happening where two or more are gathered in worship and in prayer and proclamation of the gospel and coming to the table, Christ is present. And Advent is about those second two of the three comings of Christ. Christmas, of course, is about the first. And in just a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Christmas, beginning on Christmas Eve and then on the 26th and then whatever the first Sunday of January is, I don't know, I'm not jumping ahead. I'm trying to wait and be faithful to the Advent spirit. So there are these three comings of Christ, and Advent is where we learn to live waiting on and waiting with God. And, and I added that and waiting with, I think, this morning, because the more that I thought about what it is that we do in the meantime, it feels like we're waiting on God. But here's what you need to hear. We are waiting on God, but we are never waiting without God. That we're always waiting on God with him, side by side, and side by side with his people. So Advent is the season where we learn to wait on and to wait with God. And our waiting is not a passive doing nothing. It is a participatory waiting. It is an active waiting. And in our society, we don't really understand that. Waiting to us is twiddling our fingers at a stoplight or playing drums on our steering wheel. It is waiting in the line at King Super or like I had to do multiple times this week, wait in my car in the pharmacy line at King Super. How long can it take to, to fill this single little prescription for my two-year-old that I know they have to have. It's not even pills. How long can it take? <laughs> Waiting actively is not something most of us are very familiar with doing. 
because we live in a society where so much of what we want, we're able to get for ourselves when we want it. Karl Barth said, what other time or season can or will the church ever have but that of Advent? Think about this. What other time or season can or will the church ever have but that of Advent? So the, the church calendar begins with Advent. So Happy New Year, by the way. Happy, happy church calendar New Year. But what Karl Barth is speaking about is, so the church calendar is made up of all these liturgical seasons, some of which we participate in, and some of which we just kind of give a nod to, but the season of Advent, the season of Christmastide, the season of Epiphany, the season of Lent, the season of Easter, and Pentecost, and then ordinary time, said in your best Eeyore voice. <laughs> and what Karl Barth means is that Advent is the season training us to wait, which is perpetually our season in the here and now, is it not? Even when liturgically we might be in a season of Easter or a season of Pentecost, we're still waiting. And we've been face to face with this for the last two years. We are still waiting for COVID to be over. And we are still waiting on, quote unquote, when life will be back to normal. And I think that Every you know, decade or couple of decades, there is something that happens that unsettles not just the people of God, but people everywhere. And we are, we're looking around going, when are things going to change? When are things going to change? This was around the turn of the century. Remember Y2K? How many of you remember Y2K? Are all of the cash registers just going to spontaneously combust or are they not? 9-11? Uh, now COVID, there are these seasons societally where we are asking when are things going to change? And here's what's interesting. For us, that is a fairly new thing because of the aforementioned comments about we just get to control so much of our lives that we live in an illusion of control. But the church and the people of God, the people of Israel, the people prior to the church, have asked that question year after year, decade after decade, century after century, season after season. Oh Lord, when will things change for us? So we're gonna look today at what do we do while we wait? How can we act faithfully while waiting? How can we not live metaphorically in such a way as we're sitting at a stoplight twiddling our thumbs, groaning at the people in front of us? How can we be the people of God, ready to wait on him and with him? Well, let's begin by reading a couple of verses from Luke chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. So traditionally, the second week of Advent is always about John the Baptist. It is always about John the Baptist's story of preparing the way for Jesus because preparing the way is the perfect metaphor for speaking about how we wait faithfully. So we're gonna read a few verses here, then we're gonna to jump to the verses that Pastor Jade put our eyes on in Luke chapter one. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. This is a very humbling experience, y'all. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> 
During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Note that phrase. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all God's or all people will see God's salvation. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So to help us imagine how we can prepare, we're going to look at John the Baptist as he prepared the way for the ultimate work of God. The work of God sending his son to take on flesh, to experience all that we experience so that it could be healed and redeemed, so that our lives could be taken up into the life of God. And John the Baptist was the one prophesied about in the prophets, but I think that his life has at least three things to reveal to us about how we can wait faithfully. So the first is, I want to look at where John was when the message came to him. Where was John? He was in the wilderness. He was not in Rome or not in Jerusalem. And that is where I made that comment about all the names and all the towns. What Luke is doing here at the beginning of chapter 3 is he is purposefully contrasting the who's who of the political, the financial, and the cultural world of the time against where God's word comes. So this would be like for us saying political world. So in the, in the time of Joe Biden of the United States and the, the financial world, Elon Musk of the Tesla Corporation, and I don't know, like Drake and Cardi B of cultural <laughs> society, okay? It'd be like mentioning, I knew Cardi B was gonna get you. I knew that was the one. It'd be like mentioning these names, but then the word of the Lord comes to, I don't know, I don't know if I should make this joke, Pueblo, Colorado, <laughs> Fountain, Colorado. But he's purposely contrasting the powers that be who run the systems of politics, of finance, and of culture shaping against where the word of the Lord comes. And the word of the Lord comes to the wilderness. And of course, if you've been a believer for any amount of time, you've likely heard a number of sermons on the wilderness and the desert. So I want to make this point quickly and briefly. In this story, the word of God comes in the least likely of places, the place that Israel despised and we avoid as much as we possibly can. Pastor Jade said a couple of minutes ago that God's working in the darkness. God is also working in the wilderness. The place of the wilderness represents the place of disorientation, the place of difficulty, and a place of vulnerability. It's the place where we control the least and are certain of the least. Think back at your Bible knowledge of all the stories and all the things that happen in the wilderness or in the desert. Just in the book of Luke alone, I want you to hear this. The wilderness is the place of temptation. It's the place of hunger. 
It's the place of thoroughgoing between destinations, meandering, long walks. About half the book of Luke is written as Jesus and the disciples are making their way from Galilee to Jerusalem. It is the place of danger. It is the place and the location of being lost or floundering. Just in the book of Luke, all of those things happen in accordance with the wilderness, with the desert. Here's the other thing that happens in the desert. Throughout scripture, the desert and the wilderness were almost always the places that God showed up most visibly. So the places that we avoid, that Israel despised, the place of feeling insecure, feeling vulnerable, realizing our lack, realizing that we're just not certain of very much, is also the place where in this story, the word of the Lord comes. It is where Moses' calling comes. It is where Jesus' temptation, but also his strengthening comes. It is over and over and over again the place where the word of the Lord comes. And so my message to you about the wilderness is do not despise being in the wilderness, but watch when you are in the wilderness. Keep your eyes open. Pastor Jade and Christy just got back from a time of sabbatical, which we were so excited that they went on that time and were able to have that time. And I think for me and you, we look for seasons like that in our lives for the activity of God. We, we look at seasons where we know we're going to have extra time, seasons where we know certain elements of our lives might be a little easier, that we're going to be able to get away with the Lord. And that's right. That's not wrong. But the propensity is to look for God's activity in sabbatical-esque seasons and assume that the rest of it is us just doing what we got to do to get by so that we can get to that season. And I'm here to tell you this morning that the seasons of the wilderness and, and the desert and the seasons of confusion and desolation and realizing our lack in our finitude and how little we control, those are the seasons where we need to be most watchful. Most watchful of what God might be doing. Because I promise you, God is doing something. The other thing I want to say about the wilderness is that it's the place John was. And there's nothing profound here. John, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, but John wasn't. John's father was a priest, and John was likely at a young age raised around the temple, in and out of the temple, on uh, bring your child to school day, or uh, bring your child to work day. John would go into the temple, and he would do all the things that priests do. And somewhere along the line, John made his way into the wilderness. He recognized that the calling on his life was different, and he made his way to the wilderness. And my, my point in drawing this out is for you and for me, we don't need to look to find wilderness or desert seasons. Now, if you're sane, you're not going to do that. But I have known people that are in a certain season where they're, they're lacking clarity, they're not sure what they're going to do, and the first thing that they do is isolate. And they go into these seasons, like trying to, in a sense, trying to force the hand of God. And what I want to tell you is, hear this metaphorically. 
And that seasons of desert and wilderness come to all of us. You don't have to bring them upon yourself. And when they happen, and they usually will happen unexpectedly, like for Jesus being driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness, pay attention. Watch. What is it that God is doing? What is God doing? Preparing the way requires paying attention. When we feel that God is least likely to be at work, be fully present in that space. So the first point is where was John when the message came? He was in the wilderness. The second is what was the message? What did John say? Back to chapter 3, I'll just reiterate some of these verses. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then these verses from Isaiah chapter 40 are spoken about John's calling and about how John prepared the way. A voice, of the wilder- a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads becoming straight, the rough ways made smooth. The first thing here about this message is that the call to repent references a passage in Isaiah that shows human participation with God as he remakes the world to reveal his salvation. Now, a couple of things I want to address. The first is that the way we have often told our salvation story in evangelicalism is Jesus did what what we could never do, and that is finished. That is true. Now it's our turn to do what only we can do, which is to repent and to choose Jesus, to change our mind, to believe certain things. And once we do that, then we're in the family, and now we're waiting on Jesus once again to come again. So it's this cause and effect, cause and effect kind of thinking. And I I think that that's almost been more problematic. Of course, there are some truths. Jesus did what we could never do, and that work is finished. I'm not touching that. But even the work of repentance is made possible for us by what Jesus has done. Even our turning to God in repentance cannot happen without the power of the Spirit. And when we make the decision through the power of the Spirit to repent, it's not our own doing. The work of repentance itself is not our own doing. Look at these verses from Isaiah. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Okay, now obviously this is a metaphor. He's not saying we should all become road pavers and go make straight roads for God. He's speaking about the way that we live our lives. And then every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight. I don't know about you, but I've been walking with the Lord a really long time. And the first couple of verses here seem to be saying, This is what you should do, and then this will happen. But you and I both know that we can do none of that if God is not with us, in us, beside us, before us, behind us, doing it. We can't fill in valleys and bring mountains low. That's what God does. But it seems to be insinuating that it happens through our repentance. So here's the point. Our repentance is a participation between us and the work of the Spirit. 
God bringing about his salvation to all people is a participation between us and the Spirit. From beginning to end, it's all us participating with the work of the Lord that is made possible by the work of Jesus. There is none of this, God, you do your thing, I do my thing, and then you do your thing again, and then I do my thing. Everything that we are doing Godward is because he is doing it in and with and through us. So even the call to repentance is only made possible because God is at work in you. God's upending and remaking the world happen as we repent. Because repentance means that our minds, our actions, and our lives are all being transformed. And when we repent, God meets us with cleansing. We're going to look at a couple of verses here from the book of Malachi, the lectionary. These are, these are how I chose the passages today. Malachi chapter 3 is the Old Testament reading. And I want to read a few verses of this very common passage that most of you will have heard many times. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. So there is a messenger, and there has been a calling on the Lord to come. And the Lord shows up. What is the first thing that the Lord does? He cleanses and purifies. How much do we call on the Lord? to show up. And what we really, really want God to do is to show up and change them. We want God to show up and change it, our circumstance. We want God to show up and change the crooked path in front of us. And when God shows up, he goes right to purifying the Levites and the priests. And I think the word for us is who can stand when God appears? Apart from him, the answer is no one. And when God appears, here's the catch. He is a refiner with fire and a launderer's soap. And I've heard this, and in the past, I don't know exactly what I thought, but deep down, what got into me was that God would choose those according to his whims or according to his moods. Sometimes maybe he'll act as a fire in my life. Sometimes maybe he's feeling a little more kind. And he'll act as a launderer's soap, gentle downy. Thank you, Jesus. But God is not moody. And I, I think what the author of Malachi is wanting us to hear is that God treats us according to what need we have to be cleansed. And that there are certain things in our lives that require the gentleness, the ab abrasive but gentle scrubbing of a soap. 
that kind of cleansing, the kind of cleansing that will not in any way defile the cloth that is being cleansed, but only purify. And then there are other things in our lives that are hardened, that are like precious metals that are not pure, that need to be melted down so that the things that are not consistent with the metal can be removed. And this, this is a hard word, which is why in Malachi it says, who can stand when the Lord appears? And the Lord appears suddenly. But repentance is the way by which God's salvation comes. And for us, we need to know, and I think take great comfort, in that God is not moody, but God knows exactly what needs to be healed and cleansed. And I actually think that healing is a more helpful way to think about this. Think about an open wound that is covered by a dirty t-shirt. The dirty t-shirt is going to infect the open wound, and the open wound will be getting on the t-shirt. And then over time, the infection from within is now contaminating the shirt, and the shirt now is recontaminating the wound as it gets worse and worse and worse. And the launderer's soap comes and scrubs the t-shirt. And I, the way that I think about this metaphorically is that the t-shirt, the outward, is our habits. It's the manifestations of what is within. And the t-shirt needs to be cleaned. Our habits, our thoughts, our actions, the things that we think and do, those things must be changed as a part of repentance. But ultimately, the wound itself must be healed. And the wounds are within. They are deep. Sin runs deep in us. And repentance can't just touch the outward things. It can't just touch the behaviors. It can't just be a new quote-unquote way of thinking. By reading different books and listening to different podcasts, I'm going to change my mind about certain things. That is essential. But over time, it won't be enough. The wound itself needs to be cleansed and washed with soap. And it's both of those things working together that make for a true turning, a true repentance through which God brings his salvation to all people. God cleanses us until our presence, what is offered from us. You'll notice that in Malachi at the end there, verse 4 says, until their offerings are pure. Well, what, what are the offerings? The offerings are the things, especially in this time, now we mostly bring money. But back then, it wasn't money as much as the things that were the fruit of their lives, their livestock, their grain. It was the things that they brought to the temple from which they had given their time, their investment, who they were. The things that flowed from who they were, were pure. And God will purify us and cleanse us until all that flows from us is pure. Not because God is some God who's sitting there going, I refuse to accept your impure offerings. No, because what flows from us tells on us. What flows from us, if it's impure, it reveals something about what's within us. And as long as our offerings are impure, it means that there is impurity within us. And God loves us just the way that we are, but he refuses to leave us that way. God will always work his purification and his cleansing 
not for the sake of appeasing him as a wrathful God, but for the sake of cleansing us so that all that flows from us is pure. You know why? Because what flows from us touches the people around us. What flows from me in this moment is touching you. And what flows from Brian and Amy and Tamara and Jesse touches you. And when you lay hands on other people, when you speak to other people, when you show up at men's prayer, or kindred events, or at GC, when you're in your workplace, when you're teaching, all that you are doing and all that you are called to do is touching other people. And God cares so much about the people that your life touches that he refuses to leave us impure. So the first is God's word comes to John in the wilderness. And then what is the word? The word is repentance. And the third might be a little perplexing, but is who is John? Whose is he? Where was he? What did he say? And whose was he? It says in Luke chapter 3 that the word came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Remember John's origin story? The word of the Lord came to Zechariah as he was performing priestly duties in the temple. And Zechariah's response was less than faithful and full of doubt. And, and it, is, it can be assumed that Zechariah's response held within it a wounding that was revealed because he thought he would have a son so much sooner. And there was kind of a chafing at the angel who's giving him the word. And for nearly all of my life, I heard the story. So what happens is Zechariah is silenced until his son is born. It was so easy to just assume that the silence is a punishment. But I actually think now, especially in light of what I've just read, that the silence was the fuller's soap. The silence was a cleansing. And here's the thing, with all cleansing, with all repentance, with all healing, it takes time. Nine months, this baby is inside of Elizabeth being formed, and John is silent. And he's still going to the temple. He's still performing his duties, but he's unable to speak. And I think, it's a little presumptuous, but I think what is happening is his prayers, his thoughts, his doubts, his motives are being purified. Because what happens at the moment his tongue is freed and he's able to speak? Let's read Luke chapter 1, 67 through 79. His father, Zechariah, was, John had just been born a couple of moments before, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and Zechariah prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our ancestors, some of your Bibles will say to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteous 
righteousness before him all of our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. Now he's speaking, prophesying directly over John. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy, these are the verses Pastor Jade had us read a moment ago, of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Zechariah's silence seems to have been a cleansing correction because the moment his tongue is freed, there's not an ounce of doubt. It's the overflow of decades of worshiping in the temple, of reading the Torah, of being faithful, of praying, but now he's been cleansed. And praise and prophecy flow out of Zechariah. Here's what struck me this week. We began by reading from Luke chapter 3. And we see what happens when the word of the Lord comes to John in the wilderness. And then the message is the message of Isaiah. But here's what I had never seen before. I think I had always thought it was arbitrary. John was arbitrarily chosen. The timing of it was just in accordance to whenever Jesus was ready. But think back, all we know about John's life up until the point when he receives the message is what has happened before he's been born. And he's born, and his father praises and prophesies. And what is the praise and the prophecy? It's a reflection on the promises of God that had come long before him. So see this. Zechariah receives a prophecy about his son. He has a doubt. His mouth is silenced. The nine months go by. John is born. His tongue is freed. And Zechariah speaks. And he doesn't just speak blessing over his son. He rehearses the goodness of God as shown to their forefathers. He rehearses the promises of God. He names Abraham. He names David. He names the prophets. And he prophesies all of that into his son. And then sometime like 30 years go by before we get to Luke chapter 3. And then it seems like just in a moment, John receives this word from the Lord. But I think what actually happened was Zechariah's prophecy into his son was a seed that had been planted. And 30 years later, in the fullness of time, that seed by the power of the Spirit was ignited, was activated, and something burst forth. So what is my point here? So much of our life with God is waiting. And we're waiting and we're looking for moments where people like John the Baptist come forth. We're looking for things that are spontaneous. We're looking for things where God is going to bring revival to the land. And those are not wrong things to look for. But are we also looking back at the times when God has put praise and prophecy in our mouth? And have we been faithful to speak those words, to pray those prayers, to, like Zechariah, for decades show up at the house of God with the people of God to do the things that he had been called to do so that in a moment of revelation for him, he prophesies a seed into his son that won't bear fruit for 30 years. That even in that moment, in Luke chapter 1, when he's praying, he has some semblance. Mary, did you know? Zechariah, did you know? 
He has some semblance of what John's future will hold, but he has no idea. He has no idea. And I want to say to you, while we are waiting, while we are waiting on God and with God, we have no idea what he's doing. And here's what I want to leave you with. Brian and Amy, you guys can come. Here's what I want to leave you with. <laughs> I've had good practice lately. <laughs> That when God acts in the present, he always takes into consideration the past and the future. That even Zechariah, having those words to pray and to prophesy into his son, would not have come had Abraham not come, had Moses not come, had David not come, had the prophets not come. Aaron preached last week about our lineage, the lineage of the people of God. Remember this morning that every word that you have ever received is a word for you, but it's also a word for our future, for the people who will come after us. And as Zechariah prays and prophesies, it is a mercy to our ancestors. I'm not going to stand up here and pretend like I know how God works things out in the present as a mercy to our ancestors, but here's what I do know. I know that God still cares about Abraham's faithfulness, about Moses' faithfulness, about David's faithfulness, about your parents who are lost and gone, their faithfulness, about when we are lost and gone a hundred years from now and our great-grandkids are alive. God cares about our faithfulness and God will honor our faithfulness and he cares about those who will at that time still be yet to come that everything God is doing in the present is a care for both the future and the past so as we wait on God and as we prepare the way for God do not despise the time that it takes because there might be a John that will come from a prayer that we pray or a prophecy that we give. In just a moment, we're going to come to the table and Brian and Amy are going to sing a song about longing for Jesus. And it's going to take about twice as long as normal for us to come to the table. So feel free to take your time. If you want to wait for a moment and just reflect, the words will be on the screen before you come up. But at this time... They're going to sing, and I want you to sit and wait for just a couple of minutes and pay attention to what is happening inside of you. Pay attention to what the Holy Spirit might be highlighting. Pay attention to the nudges, to the urges, to the words that come to your mind that flow up from your heart. Pay attention because Jesus is here, and we are waiting with him. Come to the table of the Lord, and Brian and Amy, you can sing. Turns to rage and the wisdom of the saints. 
receive the elements, now would be a great time. On the night that Christ Jesus was betrayed, betrayed, experienced some of the pain that you and I experience. And in the next few hours, he would experience so much more. On that night, he took the bread with his disciples. He blessed it. He broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, broken for you. And church, I would add today, broken for you in the waiting. So let us receive the body of Christ. And after supper, in the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for the remission of sins, church. Let us receive the cleansing blood of Jesus that makes way for our repentance. Let us take and receive. Thank you, Lord, for these good gifts. It is our tradition to end the service by singing the doxology. And full disclosure, this key is a lot higher than normal. <clears throat> so, Amy, I'm going to ask if you will sing melody and I will harmonize with you. Oh, okay. Brian changed. That's great. So let's sing the doxology together as we prepare to be sent out into the world. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here Thank you for joining with us.